The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. It seems like each, each new Christmas season, each new Advent season, I get increasingly stunned at how un-Christmas just the general Christmas season is, if that makes any sense. Um, I, I, I clicked on, uh, I don't know, three or four or five podcasts, you know, um, what do you call them? Playlists in Apple Music and Christmas, you know, uh, up on the housetop, reindeer. Uh, you know, and hey, you know, reindeer are fine. Um, I saw mommy kissing, he's on the cloud, okay. I mean, that's all okay, but Christmas playlists? You know, I, I just have this concern that as believers, we're going to lose, <laughs> we're going to lose this rich focus and tradition on Christ at Christmas. You know, just think historically. I mean, it used to be you'd go to the mall and you'd hear Silent Night. You know, now you hear Jingle Bells. Now, nothing wrong with Jingle Bells, but it's just not Christmas. It's winter. <laughs> Celebrate winter. That's okay, but don't call it. So our theme for Advent is uh, good news of great joy. And very intentionally, because we're Christians, we have been focusing on the news, the gospel. The gospel as it was announced to the shepherds on the night that Jesus was born. And the first week, we focused on the first words, fear not. And last week, we focused on the news for, for all the people. And I uh, went to later on in Luke 2, where Simeon uh, just celebrates that the long-awaited Jesus, uh, the Christ, has arrived, the, the one who would be a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. And this Sunday... We're going to focus on the news in its announcement of a Savior. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. And the next week we'll go to Christ the Lord. So my aim is that God would strengthen our faith as we think about and meditate on Jesus as our Savior. Father in heaven, I praise you for this text in Hebrews that makes it clear that Jesus saves us, all who come to him through faith completely because he he intercedes for us forever. Drive it home into our heads and into our hearts and into our families and into our lives. And into our world, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just by way of outline, I've got three points. Uh, One is we're going to look at God as Savior in the Old Testament. And then secondly, we're going to look at God as Savior in Christ in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. And then I'll close with five applications. So it's pretty simple. First, God as Savior in in the Old Testament or in the Old Covenant. Second, God as Savior... In Christ, in the new covenant, and third, just closing with, I said five applications, I added another one. Six applications. 
So that's what we're going to do. First, God is Savior in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. I mean, it's really clear. God consistently revealed himself in the Old Testament as the Savior of his people. Isaiah 45, 21 says it really well. There is no God besides me, God says, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. And thus the, the history of Israel is a history of God in his mercy and covenant faithfulness saving his people over and over and over again from evil and harm and peril and destruction and most significantly saving them from his own holiness because they were sinners. So think of it, you know, just I had a way longer review of the history of Israel. I'll give you some of the highlights. God saved his people from severe famine. Remember this? By providentially placing Joseph as second in command in Egypt. And then when their time in Egypt, when the people of Israel's time in Egypt turned into slavery, God saved them again by raising up Moses to confront Pharaoh with the words, let my people go. God saved them as Moses led the people of Israel to escape the Egyptian soldiers through the Red Sea. And of this, Exodus 14, 30 says, thus the Lord saved Israel that day. But soon, very soon, after their rescue, the people sinned and made an idol, a golden calf, to worship incurring God's wrath. And, and soon it became apparent, if it wasn't already, that their salvation was incomplete. They may have been saved from slavery in Egypt, saved from Pharaoh, but they were not free from slavery to sin. And they were not free from rebellion against God. Then God established the Old Testament law and the priesthood and the sacrificial, sacrificial system that his glory would be known and displayed in relationship to his people as, as the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and as holy and righteous and awful in his reaction and his wrath against sin. And so, in the Old Covenant, year after year, the, the high priests would intercede on behalf of God's people and offer up animal sacrifices of atonement again and again and again to cover their sins. And on it went, God saving his people through Joshua, Judges, King David, good kings, Contrasted with the wicked kings, and his saving work continues, saving them from his wrath, saving them from trouble over and over again. I love Psalm 107 because it's just this collection of how God saves his people. You know, from in the desert, in the darkness, when they're foolish and sinful, when they're sunk in a boat, and it just go there this afternoon. Just Psalm 107. If there's. It's just, it's just a call that God is faithful to his people and his steadfast love. Just call on him in your troubles and he will save you. 
And yet, by the time of the prophets, it's very clear that as real and as helpful as the, the old covenant was with its sacrificial system and God's rescue time and time again, there was a, a deeper salvation that was yet to come. And these were all pointers to it. A great rescue of God and the, 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 the saviors of the old covenant like Moses and Joshua and David were pointers to a, a great savior of God yet to come, the Messiah, the Christ. And the, and the prophets began to make that clear. We heard one of the prophecies from Micah a few minutes ago. And so when the angels split the night with their brightness and they announced to the shepherds that the time has finally come for the long-expected Savior to arrive in the goodness and loving kindness, it's just this great joy. Finally, the great Savior is here, Jesus. In fact, Joseph, Joseph is even told, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Well, because he will do what his name means. For he shall save his people from their sins. So there's a glimpse of God as Savior in the old covenant and the promise. And then Jesus arrives. Now, point number two, God as Savior in Christ in the new covenant. Hebrews 7.25 is, is, a, is a great capture of the, of the fullness, the completeness of Jesus as our Savior. That's why I went here. He saves, he saves all the way to the end. I'm just going to read 725 again. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since or because he always lives to make intercession for them. So a couple points here. Under God as Savior in Christ in the new covenant. Number one, Christ saves to the uttermost. I'm just breaking apart the verse. Christ saves to the uttermost. And I have to tell you, I didn't like the word uttermost when I first came upon it. I don't use the word uttermost. You know, I just don't use that word. And so maybe because I, I learned the verse in the new uh, NIV, the New International Version, I preferred the word completely. But I'm, from studying this, I'm liking the word uttermost. I'll tell you why. Uh, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. The, the word there means to the full, to the entire extent, to the complete degree, to the entirety. And, and so, actually, what dawned on me is the, the differences between two translations wonderfully help explain the meaning of uttermost. So the NIV with its word completely, uh, uh, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, is, is, a, is a right truth from the word uttermost here to save completely. Jesus saves us completely. He doesn't halfway save us. He doesn't save us part way and leave the rest for us to finish. No, he saves us entirely. And I, I thought of saving partway. What, what's an illustration of saving partway? I used to be a lifeguard. I don't know, for four or five years, I was a lifeguard. And uh, we were actually trained to, if possible, to train, to, to save people partway. It was like the preferred way to save people because it was safer. 
um, you know, so think of it, you know, so, somebody's floundering in the water, and if they've got flounder in them, you could throw them a ring buoy, or you could throw them a lifesaver, or, or a noodle, or just about anything that floats, or, 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 or put a, you know, one of those long sticks, put one of those in their faces that they would grab onto it. I mean, honestly, we were trained that that was a preferred way to save people as opposed to diving in and putting yourself in their clutches. Uh, And so on the one hand, you could say, well, you saved them. You threw them a ring boy. But on the other hand, they they saved themselves by grabbing a hold of it. So it was both and. Jesus saves us all the way. He doesn't leave it up to us. We are dead in our transgressions and sins. We have nothing left to take hold of him with. We're dead. But by the power of the Spirit, God made us alive in Christ to believe by the work of the Holy Spirit. He saves us all the way. And and we know the depravity of sin touches every aspect of our lives, our, our actions, our attitudes, our thought, our unbelief. And this text says Jesus saves us completely, completely all the way, the full deal. We take no credit in our salvation. In the, in the book, uh, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland writes this, our sinning goes to the uttermost, but his saving goes to the uttermost. And his saving always outpaces and overwhelms our sinning. And I would add, in degree and in duration. Jesus saves completely, but I'm also helped by the, the, this would be the New American Standard 1995 version. I don't know what the current New American Standard translation is, but there the translation is, he's able to save forever those who come to God through him, forever, to the uttermost. And that's a, fair, that's a fair interpretation of the word uttermost, which you see why I'm, not, I'm liking the word uttermost, because it's embracing completely, like entirely, and forever the duration. Forever. He's able to say forever. Um, in the downtown pastor's meeting, one of the things I like to do as I have chances, as I have a chance, is open up the coming sermon text to different meetings I go to. So we had a downtown pastor's meeting on Tuesday, and we just opened up the text and just reflected together on it. And one of the reflections from Pastor Jared was when, when we were thinking about Jesus saving to the uttermost, he contrasted that immediately with superheroes. Yeah, Jesus is not like a, a superhero in his rescue and his saving. <laughs> And uh, I have to tell you, uh, you know, his point was, you know, Jesus just doesn't pop in and save and then take off. Um, <laughs> I'm laughing again here now. So being a little, I've, I've seen all the superhero movies. Go, I go to the superhero movies with my adult children, uh, my, my unmarried adult children. And, uh, and so I'm up on them all, but I just can't remember all the details. So I went to this 
list of the top 10 superhero saves in movies. And of course, Superman saves Lois Lane, and you didn't know Captain Marvel saves, all, saves Iron Man in the Avengers. I couldn't remember that, even though I'd seen it. Iron Man saves New York. Uh, and Spider-Man saves this commuter train. Actually, this was the number one save. He saves this runaway commuter train in, I think it's in New York. It looks like New York. Uh, could be Chicago. And, uh, you know, he, he comes in and he gets on the front of it and he's, he's kind of stopping this 80-mile-an-hour train and he shoots a web on this side, shoots a web on this side. And then he collapses. And, you know, Jesus is not like that. <laughs> Jesus is not like that. Yeah, praise God. You know, you know one, one salvation and, and knock, I'm done. He collapses and they pull him in and he's, he's all banged up. Um, Jesus is not like that. You know, saving periodically a handful of times. You know, you only get a couple of saves per movie. Uh, and oftentimes the superheroes are busy saving themselves. You know, like, what is it? Captain Marvel's got to save Iron Man, you know. Uh, God's, God's not like a superhero. Jesus is not like a superhero. His, his, he saves to the uttermost, meaning forever. It, it's constant and continual. And he saves us all the way to eternal life. All the way. <laughs> Again, a quote from Ray Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly. I'm going to read it again. Our sinning goes to the uttermost. His saving goes to the uttermost. And his saving always outpaces and overwhelms our sinning because, I didn't read this part before, he always lives to intercede for us. So let's zero in on there, the fact that Jesus always lives. This is the reason he saves us to the uttermost. Because he always lives to intercede for us. Think about it. In the Old, Old Testament, the high priest would intercede on behalf of the people, offering prayers and sacrifices for himself and for the sins of the people over and over again. And his advocacy for the people was even symbolically displayed on his clothing, on his, on his sleeveless shirt, on his breastplate. There were, there were emblems, uh, stones of the, representing the 12 t- tribes of Israel, the people of God. And, uh, and when any given high priest died, they would appoint a new one to take his place. So just with that as a backdrop, as a pointer to the superior high priestly intercession mediator uh, that Jesus is, think about it. Christ as Savior is superior. His saving work is superior, not only because he's a better high priest who needs no sacrifice for his own sins, since he is holy and innocent, unstained and separated from sinners, according to verse 26. And not only because he offered up a better sacrifice for sins, not the sacrifice of an animal, a bull, or a goat, but by offering himself up on the cross where he died for us. And not only because of his sacrificial death, absorbing God's holy wrath once for all time, reconciling 
God's people to himself now and forever, unlike the animal sacrifices that had to be repeated year after year over and over again. But also, Christ's saving work is superior because, as verse 25 says, he lives forever. He lives forever. So, Jesus rose from the dead never to die again, and he serves as our mediator, our high priest, interceding for us by the power of his indestructible life. You wonder why his intercessory work goes on forever? Because he does. Because he does. So, was Christ's saving work on the cross incomplete? Is that the problem? That he needs to finish it with his intercession? No, it was not incomplete. In fact, his saving work on the cross is the foundation, the ground from which his intercessory ministry continues for us to this moment, to this day and forever. One more visit to Dane Ortland's Gentle and Lowly. In fact, interesting, Andrew Ballard mentioned to me Gentle and Lowly has a couple of sections on Christ's intercessory work, so I was about done with the sermon, and then I visited this, and I'm going to probably doing two things. One, take advantage of Dane Ortland's words right now, but also commend a book for you to read. So Ortland says in Gentle and Lowly, Intercession applies. Christ's intercession applies what the atonement accomplished. Christ's present heavenly, heavenly intercession on our behalf is a reflection of the fullness and victory and completeness of his earthly work, not a reflection of anything lacking in his earthly work. The atonement accomplished our salvation his intercession is the moment-by-moment moment application of that atoning work. Amen. Jesus who died and secured our salvation intercedes for us that we would be saved to the full, to the uttermost. This work, this Savior, this being saved to the uttermost, is according to verse 25 right there in the middle is for those who draw near to God through him it's a it's a description of faith coming to Jesus believing he is who he says he is and he will do well, and he has done what he says he's done and he will do what he says he will do including save all who come to him completely to the uttermost forever. So there, that's a glimpse at, the, at God as Savior in and through Jesus Christ in the New Testament, in the covenant, new covenant. Well, just right there, I thought, well, well so what? You know, I don't mean so what in that sense, like sarcastic. I mean applications. What implications does this have on us 
there's a lot. And, and, and uh, like I said, I had five, and then I went to six, and I'll, I'll do these, just walk through them. Number one, hope and distress. You know, believing that this Savior, Jesus, as described here, will save us to the uttermost because he always lives to intercede for us, will, will cause you to live with an, with an abiding, an unending, an ever-expecting sense of hope. Like confidence that God will do good for you. Jesus is interceding for you, for your good. Uh, when, you, when you are in times of need or you need help, you, you expect help from God because Jesus is interceding for you. He, 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 will, he will grant grace to you as you come to him and, and call out to him that you'll receive mercy. And, and I love the phrase uh, earlier in Hebrews of, of, uh, that you'll receive grace and a well-timed help. He, he's praying for you now. He knows your weaknesses and he's interceding for you. So we just live with this expectation that God is going to pull through in our distress. So hope and distress is number one. Number two is hope to confess. I wasn't trying to rhyme. I didn't just saw that right now. Uh, number two, hope to confess. I mean, it's far too easy, especially in our day, to live our lives with a sharp eye on the sins of others. And that, that really has a, like a, a poisonous effect on our souls because it, 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 what it does is, is it, it makes us convinced of how sinful everybody else is and then it fills us with a sense of self-righteousness and pride and a looking away from, from ourselves. And, and we become people who don't say, search me, O God, but rather we say, look at, look at all those specks in those people's eyes and we're totally blind to the log that's in our own. And Jesus does not want us to live that way. And one of the things that, that is put together in 1 John is very encouraging to me is, you know, 1 John chapter 1 is if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So come on in and confess your sins. And, and then I just get really full of hope when uh, 1 John chapter 2 verse 1, you know, John says, look, I write this so that you don't sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate. We have an intercessor. We have a mediator. We have a high priest. Jesus the righteous. Full of grace and truth. So come on in and and confess your sins to him. Jesus Jesus is our advocate. He's interceding for us. You know, That dynamic of a people hopeful in going to God, in confessing our sins, creates the, what is it? What would be the fabric, the foundation, the ground under which any good, healthy Christian community could be built? You know why? I mean, it should be obvious. Because if all we do is, I see your sin, I see your sin, I see your sin, I see your sin. Speck, 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 speck. And if we have zero sense of log, remember what Jesus says, like, you can't even see that speck very well. Because you got this 
in your eye. So, that Jesus intercedes for us and saves us to the uttermost, gives us hope to confess. Third, hope and and despair. I've considered it different from distress. I had in mind despairing of our own selves, of our own sinfulness. Um, you know, thinking, I'll, I'll never change. Uh, you know, I'm just the way I am, and I'm, I'm sinful, and I hate it, and uh, I'm never going to change. That's a lie. That's a lie. Christ intercedes for us forever. He saves us to the uttermost. You know, one of the ways I thought about this is it seems easy for me to infer that one of the things that Jesus prays is the new covenant promise in Ezekiel 36, 27. Jesus died to establish the the new covenant. And, And I'm just saying, easy inference, he is praying that the new covenant would be applied to us, namely, I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey all my rules. So what am I saying? Jesus is praying that by the spirit of God, God would cause you to walk in his ways. Make progress in sanctification day by day by day by day until the day we go see him face to face and are fully glorified. Just Hope and despairing about our own sinfulness. That's number three. Number four, hope and condemnation. Be it from the devil or from a friend or an enemy or a loved one or yourself, it's not from God. You are such a sinner. God, you have no part in God. For those who come to God through faith in Christ, this this, this is not true. I I can't say it better than Romans 8. I cannot say it any better than Romans 8, 33. Wow, Romans 8. Larger section than I'm going to read, but I'll read from 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Keep listening. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed, here it is, intercedes for us. With such a Jesus, nobody can bring a charge against us. Who shall separate us from the love of God, about the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Did you see the intercessory peace in that? 
Jesus died for us, rose from the dead. He's interceding for us. Nobody can condemn you, not the devil. God can't. God will not condemn you because Jesus is your Jesus. Jesus is your Savior. Don't believe it. But rest in the assurance. Nothing can separate you from God when Jesus is your Savior. Number five. Now I got a little more communal. Hope for others, especially other Christians. You know, think about it. Look around the room. Um, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost all you who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for us, for us, for us. So I, I think Hebrews 7.25 and the glimpse of the complete saving work of Jesus breeds in us a patience, uh, a hopefulness when we face and confront or are confronted with the sins of other people. That we would respond with, with sympathy rather than shame. No sense of, you were disgusting, I don't even want to look at you. With the run-of-the-mill relational life that we find ourselves in. Now, the simplest illustration, and I think most powerful, is the conversation that Jesus had with Peter the night before Jesus was crucified. And you know how this went. Jesus knows that Peter will deny him three times and and surely it plays out that way to a servant girl. Peter says, woman, I don't, I don't know Jesus. And to another he, who says to him, you're one of the disciples, aren't you? He says, man, I am not. And to a third person who will rightly state, Peter, certainly you were with him. Peter will reply, I don't know what you're talking about. So that's going to happen and Jesus foretells that, and, and in his interaction with Jesus, he, he doesn't say, Peter, you know, because you're going to betray me, I just think you're disgusting. Get away from me. You, you are worthless. You call yourself a disciple. I called you rock. I made a mistake. No, Jesus doesn't do that. It's amazing, grace, isn't it? That Jesus speaks words that flow out of the, uh, the blessings of his, of his death and resurrection and intercession when he says this to Simon. Here it is. This is, this is um, Luke twenty two thirty one. Simon, Simon, another name for Peter. Simon, Simon, behold. Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And then just hear the confidence. And when you have turned, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Stop right there. 
What's the connection between I have prayed for you and when you have turned? There it is. Christ's interceding work. Peter, I've prayed for you. Therefore, you're going to turn. And when you turn, strengthen your brothers. So I think this view of Jesus in 725 gives us hope for other believers, especially when they sin against us. Sixth, hope of eternal life. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for us. Hope of eternal life, number six. Implication is just the confidence with which we live that because Jesus is our Savior, he'll get it done. We'll be with him in the new heavens and the new earth. You and me, all of us who come to God through him, he will be our God and we will be our people. He'll make all things new and the eternal destiny is secure and ours because we have Jesus who saves us all the way. It's the last implication. Application. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks so much for your word. And how full of grace and hope it is for us. I pray that uh, the reality of the coming of Christ, our Savior, born for us, would land on us anew this Advent season that our Christmas would be marked by your Son Christ and our faith and hope and joy in him and love for him. Um, Meet us this season and draw us near. And I pray for all the effects of Christ being our Savior in our lives in practical, concrete, tangible, relational ways. Flesh it out to the glory of your name and to the glory of Christ our Savior, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.